And just to let you know, you can now sponsor the show on the website through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked to pledge as little as $1 per creation, which could mean per Vodka O'Clock episode or through something that I've written. And um, if you have any questions about that, find me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber, and I will try to answer them. Today, my guest is my friend Vito Delsante, and... um, I don't think we're going to be explicit or anything, but I always like to just give that warning that the show is labeled explicit just in case. So today, Vito and I are going to be talking about making comics, which um, is, you know, something that that I haven't done in a few episodes is focusing on comics. So we're getting back to that, to, to our roots there. So, Vito, uh, welcome. Thank you. Welcome back, I guess. Uh, thanks for having welcome me back. back. Yeah, I, like, yeah. I love talking to you. So... Um, Let's see. You were on the show before, but it was we were talking about a completely different series. Mm-hmm. So now I've got you back, and you're the writer and letterer, uh, letterer of Stray. Um, so before you know, I, I get too involved in the story and the process of it, and I want to make sure that we we shout out uh, your creative partner, Sean. Can you say his last Isaacs. name? Isaacs. Isaacs. Okay. Um, so tell me about Sean and how you guys came to partner up. Oh, it's a fun story that involves DeviantArt. <laughs> oh, delightful. Yeah, uh, you know, DeviantArt, you know, they're all, um, they're true to their name. They do have some deviants there. But um, how we met was, I think, I, I just happened to see, you know, uh, like I was looking at a friend's uh, portfolio or something like maybe it might have been Dean Tripp or it might have been um, some other artist that I'm friends with that's already on there and what happened was in the right hand corner they say you might also like or something along those lines and I saw this design for at the time it was somebody I didn't know but he ended up being my friend Charlie McKelvey who does a book called Watchguard which is um, which was a uh, role playing game and it's now becoming a comic and I saw this artwork by this artist and I just was floored by it. It, it. To me, it looked like somebody married Jamie McKelvey and Alan Davis, and this was the product. And um, it was Sean. So I contacted him. We, um, we just started getting to know each other. I didn't ask him to, to write. I'm sorry, I didn't ask him to draw anything for me at that point. I just was just into this guy's artwork, and I just was very – I was a fan of his before anything. And we just started talking. We realized we both liked the same things. We both liked dogs. We both liked Nightwing. We both liked Daredevil. You know, like all these things were just very simpatico, you know. And at some point I was uh, doing something for Project Rooftop and I said, hey, do you mind if I throw a couple dollars your way? Do you mind, you know, taking time out of your schedule to just do this design with me? And he's like, yeah, sure. So we worked really well on that design. So we just started doing more designs and like a step, you know, kept throwing him a couple dollars on PayPal here and there. And he had seen something about stray. Um, I think on DeviantArt, I have like um, some designs from the original artist and a page or two. Uh, that I had lettered when I was learning how to letter very early on with um, commerce experience. And he, he, he had said many years later that he was always trying to figure out a way 
to do a dog themed superhero, but he couldn't figure it out. And seeing Stray in its inception, I guess, in the original uh, kind of context, he kind of saw that you, you can do it without making it kind of like these floppy ears that look ridiculous or this kind of comedic kind of story. So he started doing fan art of Stray, and like we just, I, I was just floored by it. So I said, why don't we do something together, just something separate? So we started talking about ideas, and he got about eight pages into one of those ideas when I had to find a new artist for Stray because the original artist couldn't commit to doing it uh, within a certain timeline. Um, so th- from that point on, he had, he had to redesign every character because I wasn't – willing to um, use those original designs because it's not fair to the artist. Um, and we just started, you know, clicking. We, like, he came from New York Comic Con this past year, and he stayed at my house. And my, my daughter, within seconds of him walking through the door, just ran to him. And she doesn't do that for anybody. Not not her grandmother. Uh, instant Sadie approval. <laughs> yeah, huh? like she just, like, instantly, and before he left, she was just saying, Sean, 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 all the time. So, I mean, if there was ever, you know, a, a collaborator that you could just, you know, kind of jive with, and, you know, you have the example right there. Like, my daughter just took to him immediately. So... It was. It just worked really like, and it still works to this day really well. Okay. Well, um, how many issues do you have planned for Stray? Uh, we're doing four issues initially. Uh, there okay. will be maybe one or two kind of special one-off um, uh, kind of issues. One of them being a Stray Molly Danger at Midnight Tiger one-shot. Uh, then there's going to be a special kind of a miniseries coming at the end of the year to beginning of next year that Stray is involved in, which uh, that's probably more than I should say right there, right there. But, um, and then we have another miniseries planned for next year. Um, that'll be, I think six issues. So uh, I've, I've always looked at Mike Mignola's Hellboy as kind of like the ideal way to kind of introduce a character, especially a creator own character. I like them too. Where you have a, a solid story in one arc. Yeah, and and you never get tired of it. You know, like when it comes out, it becomes a special thing that people are looking forward to. So I just thought, well, here's a character that I I'm very fond of. Hopefully, everyone else will kind of learn to be fond of it. And I figure, you know, don't oversaturate the market with that character. Just kind of put the work out there, let it speak for itself for a little bit, and then when people are least expecting it or something, boom, here's a new, here's a new uh, story arc. <clears throat> so, yeah. So the, the character that um, you're, you're talking about with, in regards to design, one of them anyway, uh, the main character is Rottweiler. And he begins training under the tutelage of his superhero father at the very young age of 11. So um, is this, like wish fulfillment for you from when you were that age? Oh, geez, yeah, <laughs> totally. Because um, I can remember playing Super Friends in the backyard with my cousin. So we would play Justice League and oh. Super Friends or whatever. I don't think we called it Justice League. I think it was definitely Super Friends mm-hmm. and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. So, you know, I got to be Wonder Woman and Firestar climbing all over the swings uh-huh. and stuff. So uh, I, am, I, I just can only imagine that you had a similar kind of childhood. Yeah, I, you know, 
I tell everybody that my first experience with Batman, which, you know, is the influence of Batman on Stray is huge, but my first experience with Batman wasn't a comic. It was the reruns of the 66 Batman TV show that would come on after Bozo the Clown on Channel 11 here in New York. And Saturday morning cartoons with, like, uh, the Filmation series, the Super Friends, you know, stuff like that. Like, And that was before I ever realized that there was a comic book of Batman. So um, that said, you know, like, my dad being uh, kind of separated from my mom, um, I, in my childlike mind, thought that he was out fighting crime. And I, so I thought, all right, well, you know, he's got a secret. He's fighting crime. He's got a secret life. That must make him Batman. So I, that meant that I had to be Robin. Uh, like, so I was, quote unquote, training to be Robin from like a very early age. Um, I think one of the things that I remember doing was pushing a kid off of a slide because he didn't believe that I was Robin, which is not very heroic. But uh, it happened. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, just, you know, kids and, you know, getting like. Uh, foam nunchucks and just, you know, trying to learn how to use them and watching Kung Fu theater and trying to emulate things that you see Bruce Lee doing and stuff. Yeah. Like that was being a young apprentice superhero just appealed to me. Like people are always throwing around the, um, well, a grown man and a young boy. That's not that that's very unseemly, but it seemed like very natural to me. Like it seemed very, enviable too like it just seemed like um every reason for the creation of robin for um kids to kind of be put into robin's shoes and kind of want to grow up to be batman or to, to but you don't have to wait to grow up you can actually be batman kind of right now everything about that appealed to me as a kid i'm i'm glad that you you brought up all the whole batman and robin thing because that's one of, one of the things that i strongly got out of reading the issues was how uh, the influence was there, especially with Robin's silly comebacks to the villains and stuff mm-hmm. like that. He's kind of a smart ass about it. And, um, you know, now we have newer incarnations. I haven't been reading the comics for years, but I do watch Gotham. Mm-hmm. And although I missed this week, so <laughs> I, I have to go back. Um, but I, I didn't know if you were a Gotham fan because some people seem to really despise it and I really like it. And I just, I don't like the Alfred character on this version. I love the Alfred character. And I like, do you? Okay. It's it's good to hear. I, the thing I'm behind on Gotham as it is because there's a, but I love fish Mooney. She's, she's pretty, she tends to be very earth, a kid over the top. Some point. Yeah. Then like, you know, sometimes you, you kind of just like, kind of fall into it and just go like, oh, okay. She's not as silly as, like, say, uh, Sugar and Spice in the Batman Forever movie. Right, She's not that silly, but at the same time, there's a certain amount of over-the-topness to it that you kind of uh, accept. Um, I like it, but I don't love it. And the reason why is I keep feeling like they're pushing it too soon. Like, there's a lot of things that they are supposed to create a vacuum in Gotham city for the type of law enforcement that doesn't exist, that eventually Batman will fill that vacuum. But instead what they're doing is they're making Bruce kind of bat boy a little too early, you know? So, right. Well, it does bring up um, a a timing difference, which a lot of people 
point out, you know, the, the different ages of the characters and stuff. Like, my favorite character on there is the Penguin, but I love the Riddler, too. And, and it seems like they're finally giving the Riddler more time. Yeah, he's, they're both very good and capable actors, yeah. Yeah, they're they're absolutely my favorite things on the show. Um, but I do, I didn't expect to like Fish Mooney at all. And that's why I talk about her, the, you know, the way I do on Twitter, because she just surprised me so much that I that I even have any affection for her at all. Um, but when it comes to the timing, that was always one of the things that the Joker would say was, you know, hey, we only exist because you were the first freak. Right, right. You know, and this is the completely other way around. This is all of the, the freak villains existing first. Well, you know, you can look at it as kind of a um, almost prepubescent period where all these things are latent in these characters. And then Batman comes and it's puberty. You know what I mean? And like he's just bringing it out of them almost. But at the same time, like, for example, Ben uh, McKenzie, who plays uh, Jim Gordon. Okay. I feel mm-hmm. like he's kind of growing into the role. Like at first he was just talking through gritted teeth too much. You know, like where it's like you're supposed to be kind of like this like beaten up guy. And but you're, you're coming across to aggro and somewhere in, I want to say the fourth or fifth episode, he just suddenly kind of clicked for me. And then I realized what the, the weaknesses were all around him. Like um, Barbara just kind of falling back in love with Montoya way too quick. You know, like, I don't, yeah, you know, they like didn't, they, they haven't handled Barbara very well. At yeah. All. Or Montoya for that matter, or, or Alan or anything like that. So, I mean, there, there are some bright spots in the, and it's a very 50, 50 show for me sometimes. Like it's a very, and you know, just by talking with you, you know, that like, and reading the book, you know, that like my affection for Batman is kind of abiding and deep, you know? So, it's it's when the show came on, I was trying to defend it to a lot of people that didn't like it, like like really, really try to defend it. But then I realized, you know, it doesn't need me as a defender. It doesn't need me to be the one that kind of shepherds people to it. You know, like it'll you'll either get it or you won't, you know. Have you ever worked for DC? I did. Um, I did. The first thing I ever did actually was with Dean Haspiel. We did a um, a backup story for Batman Adventures where uh, Bruce Wayne goes to therapy and it's all very um, word association. It's a very quick story, but a lot of people like inexplicably, I saw somebody share it on Tumblr and it had like 10,000 shares. I was like, why can't I get these people to buy my comic? You know, like, but but it was, it was very flattering. And like, I left a note for the guy who started it and I said, you know, I really appreciate it. You know, we put a lot into it and stuff and it was, you know, it was fun. Um, I did a couple of um, Scooby-Doo's. I did three or four Scooby-Doo's, I think, um, stories. Did a, uh, I did a Superman story uh, between Kurt Busiek and James Robinson uh, that had Solomon Grundy. And it was, a, it was a lot of fun, but, man, I made a lot of mistakes that a lot of people didn't catch, thankfully. But, um, but yeah, you know, I've done some work for DC. I don't think I'll be working with them anytime soon. Um, not for lack of trying, just I'd rather work on my own stuff. Yeah, I, I can appreciate um, just the playing in your own sandbox kind of thing. I, I, you know, people have asked me, you know, would I ever want to write for DC or, you know, what would I want to write for DC? I'm like, really? There's only like two or three characters of theirs that I think I'd stand any chance of doing any kind of good with. But the problem is, too, is that... 
like I said, I love Nightwing. Uh, you know, I identified with Dick Grayson growing up, but the new 52 Nightwing is not the character that I love. You know what I mean? I know it's it's the same character name, same character alter ego, and all that stuff. But his history is slightly different from the history that you know had 75 years behind it, or yeah, 75 years this year. So um, the, it's not the same character. So for me, if someone said, "Would you like to write Grayson?" Let's say, I just I, I would have to turn it down because I have no I have no history with that character. I have no love for that character. If you tell, right, me, I understand. If you tell me, you know, oh no, we're going to do um, kind of like this convergence thing. You're going to do Nightwing before the new 52, then uh, yeah, I'll jump on that. You know, like that's that's more the character I know than, than the, new, the current one. I think that's why one of the reasons, aside from his amazing talent, that I, I was so drawn to Matt Wagner's version of Madame Xanadu, yeah. because there was no weight pulling it back, say, you know, yeah, telling me true. what was right or wrong about a character. It was like he plucked this character from obscurity and made, you know, a few brilliant volumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when you don't have the weight of history or the weight of continuity is probably a better way to say it. Um, you do, like, like Wagner doing Madame Xanadu, like you do have that uh, ability to do that. And I think a lot of the new 52 stuff does benefit from that because they wipe continuity away. But at the same time, and I mean, it might be that I'm, you know, 42 years old and this is just the way I think, but I appreciate the the stuff that came before, you know, and, and you know, like not revere it and pray to it or anything, but I appreciate it. And some of those stories are my favorite stories. And to just wholesale, just get rid of it and say, well, you know, this is a new character that you've never seen before, even though he's familiar. It, it, you're obviously selecting an audience for your books that you have been trying to get that in the process of doing that, you're pushing away the other audience. Maybe not actively pushing them away, but, you know, very in a backhanded way, you're doing that. Right. It's, uh, I mean, continuity is just not something that I want to be concerned with. That kind of stress and the, I don't know. I mean, it's hard enough when you're doing something that has any fact checkability to Mm -hmm. it. You know, like I I do write some historical fiction and that's the, the thing is getting people to understand that it's historical, but there's still fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I like the continuity, you know, if only because... I just don't know that I could write anything like that. I mean, that's just a, a monstrous undertaking. If you can pull a character that hasn't been seen, like Madame Xanadu, in like right. for 30 years, and give them relevance and make a, make a compelling argument for that character to be relevant, then I think you're doing your job as a, as a franchise comic book writer. You know, like working with... Yeah, that's why I love that idea. You know, like I... Um, I had a, I had pitched a book for JSA Classified, um, and it was a Wildcat story. And in the Wildcat story, the villain was um, Hellhound, who appeared in Birds of Prey, I think, was the only place that he appeared in. Maybe as a background character in um, 
Infinite Crisis, but like you it, blink and you miss it. Like Birds of Prey was the only significant thing that he had done. And so I looked at him, I read about him, I looked at him, I looked at the um, the appearances that he had been in, and I realized there's no history to this character. I can build a history for this character in this three issue arc. And the book, the, the, don't bother looking for it. It never came out. I did get paid for all three issues, but it never it never saw the light of day. But I think my point being that at the end of those three issues, that character of Hellhound was fleshed out a little bit more. It's like he had a skeleton and now he's got sinew and muscle and you know maybe even a circulatory system. Like you understand how he ticks, other than just the motif of his costume. Sure, and that's I mean it's a different um, history, but similar to in the sense that that other people get their hands on a character and make it their own, mm-hmm. um, you know, like we, we saw with the entire history of John Constantine, that um, you know, like there are specific periods in time that those creators got their fingerprints yeah, and, on Constantine. And you can even make the argument for like um, the Secret Six. You know, those characters were always around. I mean, Catman, I think was. I think it was a golden age villain for Batman. So, I mean, he's very, you know, he, he doesn't kind of make any uh, impact until Jimmy and Justin do villains United. And then until, and then really until Gale starts doing secret six, at least I, I think so. Yeah. It's kind of cool though. I think it's, I think it's cool that if they pulled your issues out of the slush pile, but that has a chance somewhere, someday. Oh, I, I don't. I got paid for it, so if they do or they don't, that's their that's their call. I, you know, it, it was a fun story. It had a very. If it came out, it would have really impacted the way you look at Wildcat and Batman, even to an extent, because um, Batman does have a, a small appearance in it, and it would have kind of filled in some small gaps in the history of those characters that maybe people don't even realize are there. That's the best part. Well, so you, you bring up wildcat and actually when I was reading stray, I had that. I also had it felt that influence. I was like, okay, well it's not a cat character. It's a dog Mm -hmm. character, but because they don't seem to be, uh, you know, like zapped by supernatural powers or something, I really felt like there was a wildcat influence, especially because you showed them in like a MMA style mm-hmm. cage or ring or whatever you call it. Um, and it, like, I don't even like, does wildcat even exist anymore? <laughs> I um, don't even know. I think there were, I remember reading that there were plans for him in earth too, but I don't know. Like I stopped reading it kind of shortly after it started because it, it just seemed like it was going in circles a little bit. Um, that was during James Robinson's run, so Tom Taylor might have brought him in since he's taken over, but I really don't know. I mean, someone check Wikipedia, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, guys, go hit Comic Vine. Yeah, exactly. But I, I want to get a little, a little quasi-political in a way, okay. or socially conscious in a way. Please. So, like, you know, as I was saying that, you know, I would run around in the backyard playing Super Friends. Why do you think that kids, like... You know, you and I growing up, we lived in relative safety. I mean, we we didn't live in war zones or um, 
like the kids living through even just what seems like a war zone to me out here is like the the Ferguson protests and stuff like that. I'm not, I can't imagine being a kid going through that. So um, why do you think that kids who live in safety have the fantasies of living in in an America where the world is in danger and they want to be superheroes? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I mean, speaking to my own history, I grew up on Staten Island in the 70s and, you know, 70s had Son of Sam. Um, I lived maybe three blocks away from a huge area of poverty, you know, and it's not to say that I was like in an affluent section. I mean, we were middle class upper lower i don't even know but like just three blocks away it was just run down there were prostitutes there were pimps there was drugs and everything so i don't know that i live i funny enough i lived across the street from the sanitation department um and i don't know that i ever felt like i was safe to, you know in in that sense um i remember telling my wife this recently um <clears throat> When we were growing up, we had John Lennon was assassinated, uh, Reagan was shot, the Pope was shot, and I just thought for some reason people were just going to start shooting everywhere. So I would run by windows because I was afraid, or I would duck down underneath windows, and you know just to get just because I thought somebody was you know trying to kill me or something. I don't know. Um, So my release was, you know, reading comics and playing with action figures and going to my cousin's house. Um, they had a big, I wouldn't call it a backyard, but um, the people that owned their houses, um, I had one, two, three, like six or seven cousins that lived in the same four house kind of radius. And the people that owned that property owned a construction company. So there were there's a big empty lot in the back and there were like construction vehicles all the time, like parked over there, but we were always able to run around, you know? So with those kind of big construction vehicles and um, uh, like tractor trailers, you know, we would climb on top of those and that would be our justice league headquarters, you know, the hall of justice or, you know, those, um, those vehicles would be dinosaurs or something, you know, like we really kind of just, when you're in an urban kind of environment and you're not exposed to kind of like the, the woods or, you know, um, kind of fresh air, so to speak, uh, you kind of just make the best out of what you have. So your imagination just kind of runs with you. And I think, you know, there was a, um, there's a there's a documentary on uh, Netflix called Cropsey. Um, if you haven't seen it, like it's it, it was the guy was based out of Staten Island. He would kidnap children. Um, there's there's debate whether or not he was ever caught. But I remember growing up in that and it was in that area that my my family lived, and my aunt had a name for it and she would, or for him. And she said, the fool killer, watch out the fool killers out there, you know, that kind of thing. So there was always this kind of sense of paranoia, but 
we somehow thought we were maybe because of the comics. I don't know. We somehow thought we were bigger and better than that. You know, like we, we knew how to stick together and stuff. Um, I think that same level of paranoia exists today. It's just amplified by um, kind of, I don't want to blame the internet, but the idea that you can sit behind your computer at home and play a game instead of going outside and playing a game is just, it, it just makes everything outside seem more dark and evil and hurtful than it used to when we were kids. Yeah, I think um, partially because of timing and like you said, it, it's um, sometimes the, the geography feels very different. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we were um, close to Newark, so, but I, I was born in 72, so I wasn't around during what they called the, you know, the infamous Newark riots. Right. But I remember it was that, it was that time. I remember my folks wanting to move us out of the city and, um, you know, stick us out here in the country where there's, you need an imagination mm-hmm. because you will literally lose your fucking mind <laughs> in five minutes. Um, I mean, I moved, but, it's funny. I moved to a very rural area when I was around 11 or 12, I moved to Western Pennsylvania, but I mean, it wasn't, like farmland it was you know it was a small town and you know there were hills that i could you know climb and run up and everything but you know at that point i'm not i'm not playing with action figures anymore i'm I'm still reading comics but i'm not um i'm not a child anymore so yeah that's how old i was when we moved here so yeah it's it's a little bit different of of like the environmental factor is still there in that it it colors your worldview Especially, you know, like as a young, you know, young teenager, you're starting to learn more about yourself and you're starting to kind of really be interested in the world around you. Like this is maybe apropos of nothing, but I remember I would watch I would watch more sports because I was involved in more sports in high school. So I'd watch um, like basketball and um, I I liked the Knicks at that time. and then after the game, I would go down the block to shoot hoops, which I would never, which is weird because I didn't watch sports when I was growing up in New York, even though like we had, you know, the Yankees were like the biggest thing in the world back then. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to play baseball, but I couldn't afford to, you know, like it was a weird thing. Like you to play Little League, you had to pay <laughs> a lot of money. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I wanted to play baseball, but I couldn't. And there was literally in, where I was growing up, there was nowhere to play. Like there weren't, there wasn't a baseball diamond anywhere. So, you know, the only thing a bat was good for was to, you know, beat the shit out of somebody, I guess. <laughs> but um, in Pennsylvania, you know, the access to that stuff was readily available. So if I wanted to go play basketball, I could go down the block. If I wanted to play football, I just had to climb the hill behind my house, and I was at the football field. Um, I don't. I think I drop baseball by that point, but I knew where the softball field was, you know, like I, I could walk there as well. So, um, maybe the access to that stuff kind of changed my worldview a little bit. Well, I think it's interesting though, that you had like really specific crimes and people that you, you know, you know, had propelled some fear for you mm-hmm. as a kid. Whereas the only thing I can remember is being afraid of like nuclear war. Like this was the eighties, and that's oh, yeah. that's all that I remember hearing about. The day after, the day after was a big deal. 
like when we were younger. Like it was, um, I wasn't allowed to watch it. I still have not watched it, which I would love to remedy that at some point, but I still haven't watched that, that movie, but I wasn't allowed to, um, there, you know, it was, Russians didn't bother me. You know, I understood they were the bad guys, you know, like, like the Nazis were for possibly my, my father, but I understood they were the bad guys, but I didn't, I didn't really feel harmed by them. I felt harmed by, I hesitate to say gun nuts, you know, or, um, the lone gunman and stuff. But like, those were the, like the son of Sam, like, um, um, I was scared of like blackouts, you know, like, Oh, blackouts terrify me now. Like, I, I mean, I love them now, but like back then in 77, I was four. So the 77 blackout was a big deal. I remember just being kind of like, do we go outside or do we stay inside? There's no lights in here. There are more lights outside. What do we do? You know, like it was very, it was very confusing as to what the protocol was. I mean, I'm only four at that point, so I don't really know what's going on. Um, but yeah, like that, like it was, um, it's weird. People want to look back with like retro spectacles and, and kind of like color it the way they want to. But like, there was still like my, the reason why I keep bringing up the son of Sam is because my mom is convinced that she was followed by him. You know, that is really scary. Yeah. Like she was like, she told me the story of how she dropped me off at my grandparents' house for Christmas or Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas, no Christmas Eve, because I would do Christmas Eve at their house and then Christmas with my mom's family. So she dropped me off and she felt like she was being followed. And you know, she you know, she was very clever in that she did a, an illegal U-turn and went back. But you know, she saw who it was and she was pretty sure that it was uh, David Berkowitz. Um, and she went back to my my grandparents' house and basically stayed there until she felt safe, you know. Um, but yeah, like it, like there's a lot of that stuff that, you know, we kind of things are much worse as far as um, I mean today, like as far as you know, civil rights and uh, violence against women and you know even violence against children. And yet, it was never none of that stuff ever went away. You know, like it, it somehow right. or it just got covered up by nuclear war or um, or. Well, now everything is just instant, like, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, in a, in a closer sense of what's going on globally. Right, right. Yeah, I, I just it's hard for me to not feel empathy today for for victims of any of these crimes, uh, because I do it, it. What I'm saying is that I feel like. When people bring something up that's uh, that to them is new, it, it's almost like the whole Paul McCartney, Kanye West thing. You know, like uh, how could you not know who Paul McCartney is? Or, right. or you know, if you want to be more recent, the Missy Elliott on the Super Bowl. Yeah, I heard that people were, like, were saying that. I didn't know if they were just joking. It's hard to that. tell, you know. But at it's the same hard to time, tell. if you if you just accept it at face value and just say, how can you think that oppression in uh, in Africa or in um, the Middle East against women never existed before. Like, it, like it's not a new thing. It's just that because we have a more global, um, a more global communicative community, you know, before, because we're talking on Twitter with people that we've never met in another part of the world, we have that instantaneous kind of immediate 
reaction because it's new to us because it's something that now you can put a face to a name even if you've never met that face right and what's actually along the lines of what i wanted to to talk about in regards to stray was you have these characters um in their you have the police detectives involved are from the nypd and it seems like even your fictional version of the NYPD is still very real in that it's broken. Like the system is broken and we need vigilantes. And so they have a vigilante, like, you know, task force and stuff. And so are you seeing the same things like in real world New York that it's really this broken? The answer is yes. Whether I, 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 I can reason it out or not. Um, and it's and it's fairly obvious when you read the news and you see what's going on with um, Eric Garner and and that happened in like in my hometown in Staten Island. You know, like it, you always feel safe thinking about your hometown, and then when you read about a crime that happens there, you're like, how could that have happened? You know, where I grew up, like literally, that the Eric Garner death happened four blocks away from the place that I grew up across the street from the sanitation department. Like, that's shocking to me. Like, absolutely shocking. And where I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, again, I moved out there when I was 11 or 12. Th- there's a big, big, big crime, uh, I'm sorry, not crime, but drug infestation of heroin and stuff. And it, it, it shocks me whenever I read about it, because it's like, how did that happen in a place that I consider sacred? You know, so it's not just it's not just. And again, going back to how to answer politically or, or you know diplomatically, it's not just New York that has the problem, and it's not just say white cops versus you know black cops or whatever. It's a system a systematic failure to serve and protect. You know, like there's it's it, it starts at the top and it goes down. There are tons of conspiracies on how Ferguson happened, why Ferguson happened, how it could have happened. And it all seems to go all the way up to the governor. And it's – it's again, we're talking about you know, Gen Xers here, you and I. And we've seen JFK. We, you know, we know about Martin Luther King and all that stuff. And conspiracy theories abound with that stuff. Um, <clears throat> last time I was on the show, I talked about Marilyn Monroe, like like how much I love her and how much she's the impetus behind my love for time travel stories because I want to save her. Um, and I think that still applies. Like, you know, it, we have this idea that there are people uh, call them the Illuminati or whatever. I don't, I don't really subscribe to any of that stuff, but you know, we have this idea that there are people in charge that are secret and kind of unseen, you know, and they pull the strings and all that stuff. And maybe it's true to a certain degree. Maybe it's completely fabricated. I don't know. But I do know that it wouldn't surprise me to think that J. Edgar Hoover had so-and-so killed or Governor Nixon in Ferguson, uh, sorry, Missouri, was somehow knowledgeable of the ways of how Ferguson arrests mostly black people. 
You know what I mean? Like there's something – it wouldn't surprise me that any of that stuff exists. In terms of how we represent it in Stray, it's, it's very the one good cop like Jim Gordon. You know, like it's very – somebody realizes there's something wrong and hopefully he has the answers to how to fix it, but he probably doesn't. You know, it probably it probably – will take more than one person. I think he says something like, the city's changing and I might need to change with it. And that, and you know, that's, I think that's a, probably the healthiest paranoid attitude anybody could have when it comes to justice and the justice system. Yeah, I think having at least the open mind and the wherewithal to listen to people sometimes is, um, it's at least uh I don't want to say like it's a it's a, an approach to not take a position on something, but at least you're, you, you know, you can be willing to say, okay, I suppose it's plausible. Right. You know, I'm willing to hear you out. And um, yeah, I don't. It happens. Yeah, like you said, it really does happen with everything, and it's sometimes it's just hard not to because, like, I'm I'm the biggest nut when it comes to the that there's that there are conspiracies mm-hmm. and deals being done with pharmaceuticals and the FDA and our food industry because our food labeling sucks. I think they push pills on us that they know are harmful and yet pills that people need, you can't get and, you know, or drugs that people need, you can't get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, so I'm, I am one of these somewhat raving lunatics when it comes to a certain aspect of our culture here. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I would have this case to say lunatic. I mean, cause there's definitely, you definitely have a reason for thinking the way you do. And I think that when something eventually affects us, we start looking for the answers and we don't know what the answers are. So we'll latch on to the most plausible uh, explanation for any of it. So I don't think that makes you a lunatic or, you know, like a, a, a kook or whatever. I just think it means you're more willing to look for the answers than 99 other people would be. You know what I mean? Like it's, I would love to say that it's, you know, that Eric Garner was choked out by some Guido that was racist to begin with, but I don't know. You know, like it, it, I, I don't know who that guy is. I know that if I look at him, you know, in a picture, I can make that kind of assumption. But at the same time, isn't that what's wrong with the system to begin with? Right. You know, like yeah. I mean, pointing out pointing out something that should be obvious. Yeah. You know, that's that's why. That, you know, we could we could make the argument very easily that that's why Eric Garner died. That somebody looked at him and said, "That guy, well, that guy, there's something not right with him." There's we see this with feminism too. It's it's ridiculous yeah. when people will um, collect some tweets about you know from people who are clearly misogynists. Mm-hmm. Like there's no question because <clears throat> there are people that are claiming that they're feminists and that there's no problems, and then in their tweets they will say, "You know, you stupid fucking cunt," mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like. So there's no problem here, you stupid fucking cunt. It's supposed to be like, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't need feminists. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that whole thing, you know, Gamergate and – I mean, I really uh, – I kind of – I don't want to say I avoided it. I just didn't know what was going on for a long time, and I kind of just – like a hydra. There are all these different heads. Yeah, it's really hard to follow, you know, but at the at the root of it, there's – Somebody that's just being ignorant, you know, like, and, and I mean, it's, it's just as all of it can be 
narrowed down into kind of a high school mentality. You hear that this girl did this, so you call her a slut. You hear that this dude did this, so you call him gay or, you know, whatever. And, it, and it's all kind of like – it's all misogynistic. Don't get me wrong. It's just you hear. It's all hearsay. And you just have an immediate reaction that comes from a form of uninformed opinion and I don't, I don't want to say hate because it's never it, – it, it's just trolling. You know, and, and trolling doesn't always come from pure hate, but it can lead to pure hate. You know, it, it could it quickly devolves into, you know, people just, you know, eating Soylent Green or something, you know. Yeah, I think – I mean, it's – I can understand taking a step back because I do that for certain subjects and during certain days. I'm just like, look, I just can't deal with the internet right now. I can go on to make my own tweets but not actually read anything. And, uh, like, one of the uh, women who's been a victim of this Gamergate nonsense, Brianna Wu, she posted a video that some guy posted of him – having just wrecked his car, admittedly street racing, on ice, he, t- he tumbled his, his, a car he borrowed, his mother's car. And the video is like a minute and a half of him screaming his head off about how somehow this is Brianna's fault that he wrecked his car. Okay. That's how unhinged some of these people are. Right. It's like, it's like, you were street racing, and it's her fault. Okay, what? You know, but the the really tough thing to do is to try to figure out exactly who really thinks this way or who's trying to get attention. Do you know what I mean? Like, Obama will do a um, State of the Union address, and there will be 900 tweets with the N-word. Now, who actually thinks this way or who, and who's trying to actually – you know, incite hate and who is actually just trying to be a part of the party. Right. Yeah, I understand that. So it's, you know, and that's the going back to going outside and, you know, letting your imagination run wild. That's the problem with, you know, part of what's going on today is that because you are safe behind your screen, you don't, there are these guys, I don't know where they are. They used to be, um, on 34th Street, sometimes they're in Times Square, there were these um, super militant, um, super religious, I don't know if you call it a cult or um, a, a, a faction from a certain religion, guys that were just like, you know, death to white people, you know, like, you know, and, and stuff. And their videos are all over YouTube. I'm sure you can find them. But at the same time, it's like, are those guys really like those guys have to work for a living? You know what I mean? Like there's no way they all think like that. You know, like they, they have to go to work and they have to work with Asians and whites and Hispanics. And there's no way they can actually be that hateful towards one race of people. Um, just like, you know, like, I don't know, neo-Nazism, you know, if that's still a thing, I think it is like, you live in America in 2015. Do you really think you're going to get away with working somewhere without Jews there? Like it's a, like there's well, apparently they do because I mean the University of California campus just had swastikas painted on it. Right. I mean it does. You know it, it is the the sort of time where people 
there are, like you said, factions of people that want to live in their isolated little bubbles. Mm. And I, I think it's interesting when um, it seems like fiction is somewhat predicting of that. A lot of times it has to do with class. You, basically, we always say like the 1% now, now that they have a name other than just saying rich people. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but there's, uh, you know, things like the Hunger Games and, and stuff like that. It's, they seem almost prophetic. Mm. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, it, it's weird because like you you'd ask me about like, you know, the world that Stray inhabits like New York with uh, uh, a vigilante task force that works with the police and with like, you know, the heroes and stuff. And I don't know that I could ever really get behind vigilantism as being a suitable form of law enforcement because there are, you know, there are people like this that will get, let it get to their heads and stuff because we, we already seen cops that are, appointed by the law to protect us that have let the power get to their head. Um, could it, could New York be uh, a casualty of something like this? Maybe some point, but at the same time, I don't feel, I don't feel like this could go on forever. You know, like the, eventually change is going to come, you know, hopefully within my lifetime, hopefully within my daughter's lifetime. But yeah, maybe <laughs> that's the answer. I think we can we can hope so. Yeah. Um, before we run out of time, I wanted to make sure we talk about um, the uh, a couple different things about Stray in regards to your you know like we said the character Rottweiler. You you know we compared it to Batman and Robin, and it's obviously symbolic of a lot of things. But why did you make his sort of call to action to? stop this sort of decadent lifestyle, party boy, playboy lifestyle that he had in order to turn back to the path of being a hero because he was a hero as a kid. And then for his own reasons, he stops fighting alongside his dad. And then he gets like, you know, this turning point where it's time to go back to being a hero. I think, I mean, you, you will find out why there was a falling out. Like, don't, that'll be issue four, I believe. So don't think that that's just going to be this hanging plot line or anything. Um, but I think the reason why was because it echoed my own, my own life. Um, my father died when I was 15. So I had a lot of kind of aimless years looking for answers kind of thing. And, you know, I've made no secret. I, I, had a drinking problem. I tried a lot of really bad narcotics and, you know, it was just all about trying to find answers. And the fact that, you know, I'm here talking to you is just kind of that allegory of getting back to being a hero, getting back to being something, someone worth admiring. You know, I hope, you know, like it, it, it really is a personal story that I think a lot of people can get stuff out of, but, um, but yeah, it's, it really is just echoing my, my own, my own life. That's actually really cool to think that um, there's so much metaphor behind this superhero. There's story. a lot. I mean, the funny thing is he, we don't see it in the first two issues. We'll see it probably in the third issue. Um, Rodney has a kind of healing 
ability, a healing factor. I wouldn't call it like a healing factor, so to speak, but like he does heal very quickly. And the reason why is because um, when I would do these bad things, I would wonder why it, they didn't affect me. So I just thought, oh, maybe it's like Wolverine. I have a healing factor. So that's why he has that. It's There's a lot of metafiction with how my life is, you know, like like timing wise, as far as like years, like um, my father died when I was 15. He quits being a hero when he's 15. So like there's a lot of playing with a timeline of my of my own life, you know, so there's a lot of that in there. You just have to know where to look. You know, and, you know, sometimes I, I'll point it out to people, just go, oh, yeah, that happened. <laughs> you know, like that specific incident happened at a bar in Staten Island or, or something like that, you know, like. That makes it really exciting for me as a reader, like um, like when Jeff Johns created Stargirl, mm-hmm. you know, just to, to take these characters that are larger than life, you know, and and pull them back into such a grounded origin of where the character really came from. Well, I always feel like the the problem with modern superhero stories, at least from Marvel and DC, and there are exceptions, don't get me wrong. Like, um, I think the better exception recently was Hawkeye by Matt Fraction. But by and large, a lot of these are just fight comics. You know, like, or, you know, you, you can use a euphemism of adventure comics. But I feel like the idea of mythology was originally to make sense of the world around us, like lightning. Why does it rain? Why do the oceans crash like this? You know, different, you know, different things that, you know, the Greek gods or the Roman gods or the Norse gods embodied to make our life around us make sense. And I feel like we lost that along the way where our mythology is superheroes. And we've lost the idea of using superheroes as a metaphor. You know, there, there, and again, there are a few people that do it, you know, and do it well. Um, I hope I'm one of them. I don't know. But, um, and, and again, Marvel and DC aren't guilty of not doing it. They have one or two, three properties that do that. You mentioned Stargirl, which was a way for Jeff to cope with his sister dying in a plane crash. Um, which is awful, you know, but at the same time, he got to therapeutically almost kind of come to terms with her death. Um, It's not fairly obvious in the book, but, you know, at the same time, that's, you know, that's a creator's choice. Whereas with this, this is basically with Stray, it's basically how I dealt with my father's death and how I, how I still deal with depression and um, suicide you know, and all that stuff that I'd gone through between 15 and 19. Maybe even later, I would even say 25, even though like Rodney's 19 when we see him in the present. But like, you know, like it's still a lot of that is real and a lot of it is exists and did exist and is still being worked on. So I work on it through my comic to hopefully inspire people to, if they have these problems, to find help or, you know, to even ask me, you know, like, how did you kind of come to terms with X? Because I'm an open book. I'll tell, I'll tell anybody, you know, like, I'll, I'll, if I can help people, I'll definitely help them. 
That's good to know. So, you know, when people see you at a convention or if they just want to, you know, send you a private message so that they don't have to air their own laundry. Sure. Yeah, you know, yeah, they can, they can do I it. think I've said that the one thing I the only thing I really want from Stray is to create a book that when my daughter comes of age to read it and really understand it, she can go, OK, what did this mean? And I can use it as a teaching tool for her. Or, you know, or for my son that's coming in July, you know, whoever, whoever, or any child or any, you know, teenager, you know, funny enough, the publisher the other day said, what is the age, uh, the youngest age you would give straight to? And I said, 10. And he said, really that young? I said, yeah, because I feel like a 10 year old today is not the same as a 10 year old when I was 10, you know, and that's not to say that I was sheltered or, or anything like that, you know, but my grandmother protected me from a lot of stuff, you know, and eventually I learn it, you know, just from going to school or whatever. But, you know, I don't think a 10 year old today is afraid to see blood or to, to see violence. You know, I, I watched, um, throne of Atlantis a couple of days ago and I was kind of stunned by the fact that a DC animated feature had the word shit in it twice. Wow, I even, I don't even know what that is. And like it's it's basically an Aquaman story, but like two different and funny enough, like it's weird because it almost um, goes with my theory of what a villain is. The two people that said shit were bad guys. <laughs> you know. You know this. The same thing happened to me. I, I just finished reading. Um, Miss Peregrine's mm. School for Unusual Children uh, or Peculiar Children, and uh, this book is gigantic. And they, they had to use the word shit in there. And I was like, why go through hundreds and hundreds of pages and then throw this in there like yeah. that? Like, it just seemed so unnecessary for a book that would be really good for adolescents to be reading. And it's not that they're not going to hear it. Obviously, they can hear it anywhere. Right. But it just seemed really inappropriate in text. Well, I mean, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, they like they have a couple of shits in there. Uh, they have an ejaculation joke. You know, like, like there's a, you know, I feel like if I can't give stray to a 10 year old after seeing Throne of Atlantis or Guardians of the Galaxy after, you know, hearing an ejaculation joke, then we're severely as creators and as publishers, we're severely underestimating our audience because there's no such thing as a kid's book. It's an all ages book that everyone can read, you know, right. and yeah. I, I personally, I think stray is an all ages book that if a six-year-old child wanted to read my book, I would, you know, stress, read this with your parents, you know, like, you know, they'll, you know, be able to, you know, walk with you through it, you know. Um, but I'm very comfortable giving my book to a 10-year-old. Absolutely. So this um, segues nicely into talking about Action Lab Entertainment. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you funded the book through Kickstarter, um, and then you got picked up by Action Lab. So um, there's some of my all-time favorite people and they they make amazing comics and some of my favorite comics uh, of all time like hero cats which truly is all ages mm -hmm. it's very cartoony cats where they uh they learn lessons and stuff and um hero cats is great but um what was this process as a creator like since you were you were self-funding anyway and then to pitch to action lab what was that what what was involved um that's funny because it, it, 
ostensibly because I, I don't know i didn't know if it, you were just like friends and you just said hey guys will you distribute this for me <laughs> kind of that's why it's funny it, it kind of goes that way see it is still self-funded in the sense that uh my wife and i pay for the art and uh the colors and stuff and they are more or less a channel of putting the book out to the public you know like to retailers through diamond and stuff like that through the direct market so ostensibly they don't pay for the making of the book they pay for the production of the book does that make sense yeah absolutely okay. which is the way i think a lot of people are, are going these sure days. that's why it's creator owned mm -hmm. and how it happened was literally um your friend and mine kevin freeman was one of my backers and we had a different publisher who if you look at the Kickstarter page, you'll see that there's another publisher mentioned. And they were never really truly the publisher per se, but they were like kind of a sponsor of the Kickstarter. Um, they would have published a book, but their financials kind of fell apart right at the end. So they were like, we really can't do this book. We don't have the money to kind of, you know, pay for it. And it's like, all right, cool. So I went and I searched for another publisher, Ray Anthony Height, who does the book Midnight Tiger and I have been friends for about 10 years and I've known Kevin for many years as well. And Ray said, well, now's the time we've always talked about doing a universe together. Why don't we finally do it at the same publisher? And we were going to do it regardless of what publishers we were at. If we were at Oni and image, it still would have been a cohesive universe between two books from different publishers. We, we just the way we like to think, you know? So, they had some trepidation because they were afraid that Midnight Tiger and Stray looked too much alike. And they asked Ray, what do you think? And Ray said, well, Spider-Man and Daredevil kind of look alike and nobody ever confuses them. So it, somehow or other, they were like, okay, you're cool with it. We're cool with it. And that's really, I mean, it sounds really super easy, but it was about a three week kind of wait and see. Um, will they, won't they kind of, um, sitcom I guess like a rom-com or something and eventually they were like okay what do you want to do how many issues you know and you know they put a lot of trust in me like a lot you know like I can I feel confident in saying this out loud they we didn't get a very good numbers on the pre-orders for issue one or issue two and issue two is always low but like because issue one was already low issue two was really low and they're like just keep making your book don't worry about it and that you know you don't get that at all because most people you know diamond will cancel the book you know or um or the publisher has to reach a certain threshold to make their money back or whatever and they are just like just make your book so how can you how can you fight with that? Yeah, that sounds like a like you said a lot of faith. Yeah, yeah. Between each other and um, I just I really like Action Lab. They 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 do great stories and they're really helpful in the in the PR aspect. Like when they are at a show, um, they have a great presence. They have a great table set up they love talking to people no matter who they always have like a bunch of different people because there's so many different titles mm -hmm. so it's not just the the guys who run the show behind the scenes that you're talking to but um there's always creators to talk to and that can work against you to have that many titles and stuff 
Like, uh, you can have growth that happens way too fast. And they are now going into their fifth year, I think, this year. I think this year's the fifth anniversary. They're they're kind of uh, we're trying kind of making plans for how to celebrate. Um, so you could grow way too fast, but I think they've had a very nice steady growth. And like and and like you said, you know, like it speaks well to the quality of the work that they're putting out, in addition to the quality of creator that they're attracting. Yeah, I mean at um, at New York Comic Con because of the the rules of getting a table at Comic-Con, they were actually not allowed to be in the area that they wanted to be in as a small publisher mm-hmm. because they were selling all kinds of other things. Like they were selling the toys and the merchandising that's associated with right. their, their, their titles. So because of that, they had to be over like in the toy section away from publishers. So it was kind of strange. Yeah. But they they weren't going to change their plans in order to accommodate Comic-Con's floor plan. You know, they, they just were like, no, this is what we want to do. So they had this gigantic, really great booth and it was just like a square and you walked around uh, each side and they had all the, the creators had their banners behind them and you got to like the vamplet side and the hero cat side. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just oh, hero cool. cats just destroyed everything. They, that side was just always busy. I love it. I love it so and much. Marcus, uh, Marcus Williams, who draws Hero Cats, he's just a beast. Like he just—he's great. He, super friendly. Super friendly. He just sat there, talked to you while he was drawing cats on on covers for, for people. He's just and and like we had a um we had a signing at JHU Comics on Saturday night or Friday night, one of those two, and he's literally sitting in the corner still drawing cats on people's covers for the next day for them to pick up. So I love Marcus. He's a great guy. Cool. And that's, a, and you know, that's the other thing too, is that you get to meet, uh, I, I think it just, you know, it works all, at all, you know, publishers and stuff, but when you get to meet people that you like, you know, and they and like their work and stuff, it makes it easier to kind of put together, like I, I mentioned at the beginning, like that Jamal Igel and Ray Anthony Hyde and I are doing a Molly Danger Midnight Tiger stray crossover one shot. And the three of us, like I've known Jamal for plenty of years. I've known Ray for plenty of years. And like the three of us on Skype are just having fun, you know, you can tell. And, and I love, uh, Jamal's got like one of the greatest personalities Mm -hmm. where he, when he was at DC for so long, he sort of, um, I don't want to say like knew his place, but he accepted that that the um, like Supergirl that it wasn't his Supergirl. Was Whereas on. with Molly Danger, it's like no, it's my Molly Danger. If you could have seen, and this is something that I think every creator, every creator of especially a superhero comic, I think wants one of two things. They want uh, maybe maybe three. Um, they want an action figure made of their uh, creation. And they want to see a cosplayer dressed up as one of their characters. Yeah, I know. I always ask people. That. And if you could, if you could have seen Jamal's face when someone came over dressed as Molly Danger, like, uh, not only were you jealous of it, you know, professionally jealous, not like you know, super jealous, but like his joy was just so uh, un unbridled and just so real. Like you couldn't, you couldn't, you you can't bottle that. 
You know, like it was just something else to just see that. And just, and again, I've known him since very early on when he started at DC before he, before he signed an exclusive and he was doing, I, I want to say Green Lantern with Judd Winnick at some point. So like, I know that he was very early on in his DC work and to see the guy who come in and, you know, I had to drop off pages at DC and not to say that he didn't appreciate his work at DC, but to see, you know, like the grind of the job of the deadline, just get to him um, every day, you know, like, and then like to just walk over to his house from my studio, he's like right up the block, go over to his house and just like see what he's working on and just see like these amazing spreads that are just so his imagination kind of opened up somewhere between the last DC work and Molly Danger. And yeah, you, know, like, you can tell. And see, then it's and it's being happy. It's a matter of being absolutely. happy. Absolutely. And you know, like that's funny because like I know that feeling, you know, like working on like seeing the Kickstarter succeed for Stray was like a great, you know, like great boost to my confidence. But what really did it was seeing the first issue printed in the Kickstarter. And then when the first issue comes out in print in, in a couple of weeks, you know, from Action Lab with an Action Lab logo and stuff and seeing that, seeing those, you know, like in your hands, you know, those are, you know, I wish I had a lot of money so I could just print people's books. Because I know. I always think of that, too. I'm like, man, if I just won the Powerball, just think of all the publishing I could be responsible for. Yeah, because, I mean, you can't, like, nobody ever, you can't teach that. And you can't, um, when I tell you, you know, oh, it's so, like, fulfilling to print your own book, you know, like, I can't tell you that. You have to experience it. So I wish I could help you experience, you know, everybody, really, you know, my friends and stuff. Like, I wish I could help them experience the joy of holding a printed copy in, in your hand, you know, especially on something that you love and something that's a part of you. Like, Stray is a part of me, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I know that feeling. I mean, I did it with a with a short book, but you know, even something where I only got like a hundred copies or whatever it was. So got mine. It's like you know, it was just one of those things where I'm like, oh my god, this is so cool. Yeah. Um. So before I let you go, because I know we're we're like over time already, but I just wanted to talk about um since we're talking about feelings and happiness and the joy of of your your comic being made, um. Let's end on a down note. Sorry, folks. But we were talking about unfinished projects and how, um, like, I, you know, I'm still working on a, a couple stories that I, I feel like, oh, my God, why aren't these getting done when I'm simply just working at my own pace? They're, they're not on a deadline. My deadline stuff is like bang, bang, done, right. you know. But when it's the stuff that I'm, I do at my own pace, I just, uh, there's so much lull and it's, um, Sometimes, you know, you need to just walk away from a, a story where you're like, you know, maybe I thought I had a good idea here, but it's not working out. Or maybe I just don't have the dedication for this story. So what is, you know, is it something that you just accept as, well, this is how writing is done. Sometimes you just pitch your stuff and just abandon it. Um, to a degree. I mean, I, like I said to you before about writing, you know, all these unfinished novels, I accept my limitations 
in the sense that I, you know, I've never written a novel, so I don't know if I'm doing it right. You know, so I accept that. Uh, here's a better, uh, better illustration. Um, some, this is probably not really, you know, revealing anything that I shouldn't reveal, but I met with a company at San Diego this year that wanted to do Stray, and this is before the book even came out, funny enough, but they wanted to do Stray as a web series, like on a Netflix or, you know, not Netflix, wasn't Netflix, let me just, you know, say that out loud, (laughs) but it was a company like, like that, like that, um, they did BoJack Horseman, so they develop the property and then they bring it to Netflix or Hulu or whoever, so they were like the intermediary, I guess, so they were interested in Stray. And they go, you know, would you like to, you know, like take a stab at writing like the pilot? I'm like, yeah, of course. So I started writing the pilot and it's still not done because I'm actually trying to adapt the comic in a different way so that it's not so, it's not so Silver Age DC, you know, with all these different characters running around. It's just Doberman and Rottweiler and the police and the villain. You know what I mean? Like just kind of free of the, uh, the bells and whistles. So in writing it, I'm like, I don't know how to write a pilot. You know, what am I doing? You know, I have, a, I have final draft, but I don't know that I'm doing this right. So there's a, there's a, that self doubt that comes in when you don't know what you're doing, but at the same time, there's always that just get it done. Let somebody else figure it out, you know? And I feel like, there, there's too much work to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's not enough hours, too much work. So something's going to get dropped for the day or for the week or for the month. But at the same time, you know, like as long as, you know, you're honest with yourself and you continue to work at it and make the the strides to make these things happen, I don't think that there's ever – I'm going to say this, but I know I'm a hypocrite for saying it and I'll explain why. I don't think there's ever this, you know, idea of failure as long as you're still working at it. I have a very, very, very crippling fear of failure. Oh, I do too. Yeah, absolutely. And I am lucky enough to have a wife that knows how to talk me out of it. You know, so it's, it's, it doesn't always work. You know, sometimes I just still need to be by myself for three days and just work on it and on my own. But like at the same time, um, sometimes you just get other stuff done. Like, I don't know how, but I finished a script last week, you know, and I, and like last week was just awful as far as being ill and having to run back and forth between the studio and home and, and goodness gracious, I had so much going on last week. And then this week I finally get to come into the studio and it snows, ice, and death all over the place, and I have to just stay home and clean. So today I'm at the studio for the first time for a full, for a full day, and I just feel like oh, I'm getting things done, I'm accomplishing stuff. And, you know, it, it, you know the best advice I could give is just you got to work at your own pace and you got to make yourself happy. You know, like it, it's really as simple as that. If you're not happy working on something, it's going to show in the thing that you're working on. Yeah, I think that's um, pretty sound advice. Well, I, think, um, I, I think, I mean, we we doubt ourselves enough that, 
at times when you really are ready to just like throw in the towel on a certain project, it's uh, it's helpful to go talk to other writers and artists. And, um, you know, there's times when artists have to also like toss out a page completely and just start from scratch. Um, you know, look to guys like Gabriel Hardman, who will talk about that. And um, there's plenty of writers who will talk about it. One of you know one of my friends Josh Stallings said something about wrote ten pages just deleted them the next day, <laughs> and it's like sometimes you do you know just I've do. never I have stacks of notebooks that just have half written ideas, even just like a title just at the top of the page. Oh yeah, you know I, mean? I think that's I I, th- I I don't think that's unusual at all. I don't either, and you know like it I think. As uh, maybe it's because we're comic book readers and collectors that we have this mentality, but there's a certain reverence for paper, <laughs> you know, that for me, I can't throw out anything that I've written on or anything that I've typed on or anything that I, you know, like I have, I have so many versions of the same script printed that I've now started either printing on the back of it, something new or just learning to let go, you know, but like, if I'm not happy with something, I never throw it out. It, I, I know it's going to be something some point, you know? Yeah, I mean, it might not be there in that story doing, you know, what you wanted originally. But, yeah, just copy and paste it to something else and maybe get back to it. I could tell you Stray, the next volume of Stray was supposed to be something completely different. Uh, forget that. The first volume of Stray was supposed to be something completely different. And what happened was it was it was almost the tick and not in a comedy, you know, sense, but in the sense of all these fun character like it, it became masturbatory after a point where look at how cool I can make this character or whatever, you know. But at the same time, I realized that why this story wasn't working was because I wasn't focusing on the character that was me. And I had a friend who um, – Makes uh, music. He's a rapper, and he go and he put on uh, Twitter. Does anybody have anything that they want a soundtrack to? And I was like, here, here are the first four scripts. And in his song, he found something that I never knew was in the scripts. So I went back and rewrote because I knew that that was the thing I needed to kind of amp up. And it was the whole father son relationship. That's really cool. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's, I love it. You need sometimes you need another set of eyes to see it before you can, and and it wasn't even so much that he was like he told me to play up that aspect because it wasn't it, it wasn't that it was just that the aspect that he was talking about playing up really spoke to my relationship with my father because it was Stray was originally just what's the sequel of Watchmen like literally like and you can see it in the first couple of pages you know that take place um, with the Doberman you know, like uh, in the modern day, like you can see that it's, it's essentially like he's getting thrown out of a window and all that stuff. You know, it's essentially Watchmen right there. And it, it started as that, but it had to go somewhere else to be about something else. Cool. Well, see, so we didn't end on really a down. No, it's not still, at all. It's, it's about, you know, killing your darlings, but sort of just like setting them aside. So they're not completely dead. They can be rezzed later. <laughs> I mean, they're all our kids. I mean, like, it's, yeah. it's really, you know, anybody that's never had a kid but has created something knows what it's like to have a child. 
you right. know, and it's like they're all precious to us. They're all they're all special to us, and all we want is for someone to acknowledge how pretty our kid is. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean <laughs> that's true. That's true. It's like, oh, I hope somebody likes this. <laughs> you know, like even if it's as simple as you know, posting a picture of your pet. You know, like like whether you find yourself being you know in a in a family way or not, you know, and you're raising a, a lizard. Or something, and you're like, and you're on Instagram, and you're like, my lizard is the coolest. Look, he's got a beard. <laughs> you know, it's you latch on to that thing that is you. You know, and I always say that we don't choose pets; pets choose us. So it really is a reflection of who you are. By the same token, our creations are a reflection of us as well. I can't say that about Superman because Superman is somebody else's book, but I can definitely say it about Stray. You know, I can say that Stray is as much an autobiography as it is a, a fictional story, you know, and you can't get that out of, out of, out of a Superman or a Spider-Man or something. Even a, a, the only exception would probably be Mark Wade doing flash because I know a lot of that was part of what he was going through at the time. So, but yeah. And all I want is for people to look at my book and go, wow, this is pretty. There's a really nice story. I like it. <laughs> you know, like it's it's just as simple as that. It's just as simple as putting a picture of my daughter on Facebook and everybody just hitting the like, you know. So where can people follow you so that they can see pictures of Sadie <laughs> and her first cosplay experiences um, and learn about Stray? If they're interested, um, you can definitely find me on any social media just looking for Incognito, whether it be Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter. Instagram, uh, Vine, <laughs> I think. I don't even use it much, but it, I know I'm there. Like anything that, you know, you can find that you can spell incognito, you can find me. Um, you can email me at veto at incognito. It's that simple. Um, my website is incognito.com, and on the left-hand side of the banner there, there is a bunch of Google+, Plus, Twitter icons, MySpace even, you know, that you can just click on and find me there on all of it. And Stray has its own Twitter. It's I am the Stray on Twitter. And it's got its own Facebook page, but we won't go into that. That's too much. Okay. Well, they, they'll be able to at least keep uh, keep up with the updates yeah. and you'll be able to announce when to do pre-orders because like you said, pre-orders are very important. Um, so pay attention to the Action Lab feeds as well um, because that way, you know, people can always learn about the pre-orders for all of the other cool titles. Mm -hmm. Um and that about wraps it up. So, Vito, thanks for, for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. You guys can uh, follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. Everything else is at AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget that you can sponsor the show and the website. Go to Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked, and you can pledge as little as a dollar per creation. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>